Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program and podcast where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work in today's wild world. I am Cameron Kitt, um, also known on WIR's DJ Lilas, and you can find this show streaming on podcast platforms and on Instagram at They Came From Outer Space underscore. I'm here today with Victor Caressel and Noah Scalin to discuss the 2009 film District 9. Now, to everyone's surprise, the ship didn't come to a stop over Manhattan or Washington or Chicago, but instead coasted to a halt directly over the city of Johannesburg. The doors didn't open for three months. It just hovered there. Nobody could get in. Why are you here? Why don't you just leave? Yay! Yeah, thank you for having us, Cameron. I guess I could do like a little prawn. Yeah. Oh, if I could do the the prawn squeaks, then oh my god, they sound. How do you do that? Do you guys see how they made the prawn noises? It was using. I didn't know. Rubbing on a pumpkin. Pumpkins. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) I was like, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so. Um, I'm just really excited to talk about this movie. It's been how long? It's, it came out in 2009, so it's 14 years old now. Yeah, almost um, 15, yeah. huh? No, yeah. 2009 was three years ago, max. <laughs> There's no way it's been true. more time than true that. that. <laughs> I'm still 26. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did either of you see it in the movie theater? I did. I did as well. Um, Do yeah, you remember the vibe out. at the time? Like when it was, Gosh, Do you remember people liking no. it or being shocked by it or what? I think so. I mean, I I remember really digging it, but I only saw it that one time. I literally, this was Shame. my second viewing was on it. So I was like, Shame. No. yeah, I just remember, I think I was with friends and I just remember getting up and being like, that was good. <laughs> That's it. That's all I remember. Remember thinking it was really good. Watching it again. It's as Neil Blomkamp says, it's relentless. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was the period in my life, at least when, I was getting like super into not not necessarily viral marketing and, and stuff like that, but like there were a lot of movies around this time that were doing that kind of zeitgeisty, exciting, like advertising in all different spectrums and, and making it really uh, mysterious what was going on. So like Chronicle was another one oh, yeah. and Cloverfield. Like these, those are the three mm-hmm. within about a year they released with each other. And the marketing was really uh vague you didn't really know what fully was going on with it and like for this movie for example i remember in some of the bigger cities they put posters up that said like report non-human activity and no one know what was going on that's awesome and i was already familiar with them i knew neil blumkamp's work from i the the short that he made alive in Joburg, which this was inspired by uh that was circling around because that's what got him the uh the hype to possibly do the Halo movie, right? Which, as yeah, we know, then that it, got um, dropped. And it something about Halo finally just came out last year. I didn't even bother watching it. It's fifteen years too late for me. Um, <laughs> but that, like, a lot of nerds online, on like, same people were doing the Lost forums and all that stuff. Like, we were all just kind of consuming everything we could about, like, what is this movie about? Like, is there going to be a sequel? Like, is, are they? Is there a so every movie in the next two to three years after? district nine came out that was vaguely sci-fi everyone online was like is this a secret sequel to district nine like are we gonna finally get something that was like its legacy like it at the time it already had like a legacy of of mystery around it like who is this guy where did he come from 
people are still asking for district 10 and mm -hmm. i just read i just read like a 15 paragraph guest like summary of somebody's theory about the prawns on reddit like you're, i really appreciate you putting it in that context of lost <laughs> and just and um oh jj abrams film that you just mentioned um, uh chronicle yeah Field. Yeah, uh, like mysterious, but you know, we'll we'll get into why these aliens are really unique um, in just a moment. I'm going to reintroduce um, our listeners with who you are. For the avid listener who um, recognizes the voice of returning guest Noah Scalin, this is his fourth appearance. He came on Hello. the eighth episode about Dark City. <laughs> Thank you, super super sci-fi nerd extraordinaire. Um, take it, movie master. Uh, we came on for Dark City. We talked about Wally, and I we talked about cut. Fifth Element. Well, as we mentioned before, you've been doing this for five years, so <laughs> I have to like have to tell them. Okay, no. Noah Scalin is back for his fourth appearance here on the show. He worked briefly for Troma Films as an art director in the late '90s. He's a highly regarded artist in Richmond and beyond, working in stickers, murals, and pretty much anything he can get his hands on. He just was in a show at Gallery 5 this past April, and he's in the midst of finishing his sci-fi novel that he's been writing for... A couple years now. A couple years now. Um, but you probably know him from his famous Skull a Day series and book. Most pertinent to the film that we're talking about today, he is Captain Orlock, the fearless leader of space steampunk universe League of Space Pirates that leads, lives as a performance and music experience. So, Noah, thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, and also, we have another returning guest. This is Victor Caressel's third episode here on They Came From Outer Space. You guys each get like a sticker, I guess, in the mail now. <laughs> um, Victor's a screenwriter, film buff, Jeopardy auditionist, and a good chunk of the reason why WIR's 48-hour film team face for Radio 1 Best Picture runner-up in 2018. And we won three other awards um, mm -hmm. for the ghost jump scare film Negative Space. <laughs> Uh, Victor shares a special love of horror. His screenplay, You Will Never Walk Alone, written in 2017, melts together plot lines from five of the biggest horror dynasty series all into one scare fest. Um, and he's currently working on a miniseries. So, Victor, thanks for being here, too. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Cameron. Uh, so, Noah, why, why District 9? Uh, you know, I was looking at my list of, like, films that I, I've never forgotten have stuck out to me. And that and and I'd put that on a list, and I was like, "Gee, I've only seen it once, but something about it, man, it just really stuck with me." And then when you were like, "Yeah, let's do it," I was like, "Oh, I just <laughs> wonder what's going to happen when I rewatch this movie." Uh, and I, you know, I think it's interesting because you know, trying to remember why something that long ago sticks with you, and then like, what's what's what does it look like in today's frame of reference? You know, and, and that was really interesting. But boy, does it hold up. Man, oh man. A lot of bad things started to happen. They must just go. I don't know where they go. They must just go. We're at the breaking point. People are living in fear. I was, I was like, just riveted. Like, just holding, you know, I was like, I can't believe just how nonstop this is. How well made it is. And how... Yes damn good looking those effects are considering how much you and I both agree that like, we'd rather have practical effects. And it's, I, I was like, they must've done some practical. Oh yeah. They had, and, they had a lot of practical, but also it's like almost every shot in the film is a, a, a VFX shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. crazy. Which is insane for $30 for million. For their budget. budget. Yeah. They're for their budget is nuts. I think they said there were 600 VFX shots. Which yeah. is on average like the same number as the Transformers movie. 
Right. And they've got, you know, just, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a Transformers movie is like 150 million to two. Okay. Well, so, you know, five times as much money. Yeah. 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 At the least. Now, I think there's a difference in that um, Neil Blomkamp is a VFX artist, and that's how he started in film. That's like his very beginning thing is just doing special effects, special effects. Um, Yeah. So, I I mean, I, I agree with you. I've only seen it once, and it stuck with me so powerfully. And watching it again, I watched an interview with Neil Blomkamp where he said he was watching it again at this interview with um, Adam Savage at the Alamo Draft House. And so he's oh. like, oh, it's been a couple of years. I forgot how relentless this movie is. And I was like, mm. yeah, there's not there's not really a break. There's yeah, no there's lighthearted couple, break. Like a, like a couple seconds of slowing down and then it just rockets off again, which is no. great. I mean, Which is okay. what it's he, like to live in a slum, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he uses all of those little breaks for like, because you don't get a lot of pure character stuff in the movie. Yeah. It's kind of mm-hmm. really, because it, it is docu-style, arguably. We'll get into that later. Um, mm-hmm. and so, like, it really doesn't have a lot of time to just sit down with a character and let them go through a moment. But it really takes those moments that it, it gives, the, that the movie gives it. And it there's only maybe three or four throughout the whole thing. And it, like, really makes those work well. Yeah. Yeah. I, like, when the, when the little boy... Um, boy alien goes, we have the same arm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like a one moment where he's sitting in the whole movie, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, that's really interesting. You have to be, yeah, and I feel like for a two-hour movie, I mean, that's kind of a bold choice to push you, to push the audience so far. It does, it push, it's a lot bloodier than I remember, and it's a lot grosser than I remember. Um, a lot of squishy, exploding Foley sounds. I'm just, I yeah. imagine they just smashed a watermelon or something. Yeah. A lot of those. <sighs> The alien all gun, that, but you know, all that digital but, squib stuff that was just like messy everywhere, just like hitting blood, the lens, the yeah, camera, the like, camera. Yeah, it was reminding and, and me they, of um, the first time I saw Battle Royale, and those effects look so crazy that like those blood effects that were digitally added, and and so I was like, oh yeah, right, this was like right in that era of like amping it all up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who haven't seen District Nine, somehow. This episode will not ruin the experience. We will ruin the plot, but I, there's there's studies that show that experiencing and listening to spoilers doesn't always decrease. It can actually increase your enjoyment. Noah himself listened, or watched Possessor after listening to our episode, and did it. Did knowing what happened ruin it for you? Not in the least. I thoroughly <laughs> yes. enjoyed it. You know, because then you, you're kind of looking for stuff, which is kind of fun. When you go into a movie, you don't know what's coming. You know, it's fun. But when you know what's coming, you can also have this like, how are they building this? Like, how is this yeah. going to end up there? And that adds yeah. a different level of tension. So, and there's yeah, one, and- it's one thing to talk about brutal violence that happens in a movie and and horrible things that characters do to each other, and then another thing to watch it unfold. True. Very yeah, true. that's so true. Um, thank you guys for really backing me up and giving me that that. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. that it's real. Like basically, what we're saying is, go ahead and listen to this podcast if you haven't seen District Nine, and then see if you want to give it a watch. Um, if you really want to watch it now, you can find us on any podcast platform at They Came from Outer Space. I'm going to introduce this film for you guys. So it was released in 2009 for TriStar Films with the backing of Peter Jackson. District 9 was written um, by Neil Blomkamp, Neil with two L's, and his wife, Terry Tatchell, was directed by Neil, based on his short film, Alive in Joburg. Um, Neil went on to direct Elysium and Jack, by the way. 
District 9 takes place in a universe where refugee aliens with a bug humanoid look called prawns land over Johannesburg in South Africa in 1982, where they are relegated to a massive slum picking for scraps. The story begins in the 2010s, 28 years later, and follows Wicca Standermere, played by first-time actor Sharp. Sharp, please help me, guys. Charlto. Charlto Copley. Charlto Copley, a Michael Scott-type government employee working alongside the weapons company MNU Multinational United, to forcibly evict the 1.8 million prawns and move them to a concentration camp 200 kilometers outside the city. When Wickus inhales alien power fluid during a shanty raid. He begins to metamorphosize into a prawn himself, setting off a bloody chain of events that will change both prawn and human history forever. I I, I forgot how closely it, it resembles the fly in this transformation stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, literally the fingernail stuff. I was like, wow. And I, I listened to your episode about the fly as well. I was thinking yeah. about that. And his arm changes first. It's like the same kind of process, yeah. step by mm-hmm. step, that we get. There's a lot of gross non-human vomit coming out. Just, <laughs> fluid, just fluids all over. It is funny how much grosser the fly is. <laughs> the fly is definitely a stickier transformation. This is, just, a, this is a drier one. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine Jeff Goldblum playing Wickis? I feel like that would work really well. But, you I know, like could, it's, yeah. it's, it, there's a lot of stretching skin over over mm-hmm. shell coming out. So, yeah. yes, I, I, the fly and then you're coming back to that same well, touch so, point of, of Kafka, right? Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, that's another good touch point. Yeah. I, but this actor for being a first time actor is phenomenal. Like he gives an incredible performance and I, he's in the, so he's in a live from Jobert. He's, he's a, in it briefly. And that's actually how they first work together. Yeah. And, and you know, what's funny is I forgot that I had seen a live from Jobert, Jobert when it came out, like it was one of those internet mm-hmm. meme videos that people were like, Oh, you got to watch this crazy thing. And at the time it looked crazy. Like now you look at it and, it, and the special effects, you know, it looks like a video game, but it looked really, really real at the time. And it was just really clever. But I think he's so smart about how he did all the using the documentary style yeah. really mm-hmm. helped, like, mm-hmm. create this ability to make a much more realistic thing, I guess, with it, because he could like things could be blurrier in the background and not, and you could kind of buy it even more. But I was mm-hmm. waiting for the CGI to fall apart. And mm-hmm. other than like, I think right at the beginning when there was like a bunch of aliens and it looked a little like a video game mm-hmm. after that, I was staring at it like, man, this looks really, really good. Like it didn't bother me. Like it's yeah. like, it's like rewatching Lord of the Rings. It's really right there. And it's like, I think it's because Peter Jackson was bankrolling it and he had Weta digital and he had these like New Zealand amazing teams that, and, and of course his innovation with the documentary style, but it just didn't break. It's the same thing as watching Gollum now where I'm just like, she she's still doing her thing. She looks ageless. Like I'll just like look at her go. Like, That's it's impressive because a lot of stuff doesn't age well. With, yeah, with I watched Jumanji. Now of course Jumanji is a full decade earlier, but Jumanji is like it's like pixelated. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's like watching the first Toy Story, and you're like, oh, this yeah. this looked really good when they came out. You're like this yeah. movie rocked my world. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I think. Go ahead, Victor. And and there's a really good about half hour video on YouTube um, that a channel called CGY uh, made that breaks down just exactly like why, not only why it works, but the the fundamental idea that Blomkamp had behind making the visual effects in this way. Because his first idea was, and like the the impetus for this movie was like, I want sci-fi stuff in the Johannesburg areas where I live just because I think that would be interesting to see but then he kept like all of that kind of cascaded on itself it was like well how do I do that 
well, it makes sense if it's some sort of like alien invasion, like because th there's obviously are the apartheid societal messages that he's trying to talk about. So he, the aliens go in there, and then well, how would we? How would I do that? Well, it makes more sense to, for it to be a documentary style. It's like we're like we're going into the slums and talking to the aliens, and then everything kind of cascading. Like, well, if it's documentary style, then we don't really have to focus on the aliens. It makes more sense, and it it's realer if they're just kind of off to the side, or the effect isn't the focus of a shot. So all of those things just lets like it informs the next decision of, well, then we can do X, or we could have this kind of shot in here, and we don't have to worry about it being like a big. From your shot because it's kind of just out in the out in the side and uh we can only spend two seconds on it because it's a really really quick uh cut to the next one uh, i'd love to know how much they spent how what percentage of the budget was spent mm -hmm. on effects because they basically the set was real they didn't have to build yeah. it. Yes. like that's I that's a that crazy was, thing i thought that was really interesting and in how that informed the story uh, you want to tell mm -hmm. us about that noah well, just that, like, the storyline of the film essentially mimics a storyline of something that had actually happened and was yes. actually just finishing happening at the time. They were kicking people out of these shanties the way they were doing in the film and and moving them to another location, forcibly, essentially. And so, you know, and he was also writing this based on his own experience, as you said, like growing up in South Africa and dealing with apartheid. And so there's this, you know, just this this production value that you just, I mean, you how would you you know you wouldn't have that otherwise yeah. and then they've got these low paid actors essentially because they're not big name stars and so you know and then that's a writing team of the, him and his wife so yeah like could they essentially spend the bulk of their budget on they had effect, to right yeah right Which yeah is, i mean i would guess it's going to be in the 80 percent, but i don't know um I think it works the same for the same reason that the John Wick movies are such good action is because they're directed by a stunt coordinator. So like mm. he was writing and directing these films right. from the stunt or adapting like, and this guy was completely planning everything from visual effects. Like, and he had planned out the visual effects and then would direct on set. But yeah, yeah, the fact that the ANC was actually moving people out of Soweto and that shanty town, that slum was almost completely real and they didn't have to change almost anything. And they just moved right in and then they're making a film about race and oppression and they only built, I just thought that was so mind boggling and yeah. also lucky. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like the, and it well, just you know, gives like, a grounding to the film that I think you would not have otherwise. Yeah. But, yeah. Th but that's something I want to bring up. Cause I think that's the most difficult thing for me rewatching it was, wow. Okay. This holds up, looks amazing, but boy, with the modern lens, is it hard to watch a film about apartheid made by a white person who then has this, the Nigerian... The Nigerians. I had, oh, had written, it's in all caps. I'm like, this would never fly. No, like, it's... The Nigerians are so... Um, cartoonish. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and as somebody who like has a good deal of Nigerian friends, it's really rude. And he, there was some quote from him. This was, like, you know, the interview I watched was seven years ago, so four or five years after the film came out. And he's like, I just really wanted to have the whole thing about the meek Mita eating... What was it called? The, like eating the muti killings, muti, yeah, and like, and how yeah. that was part of African culture, and I really wanted that to be in there. And I was like, yeah, you could have had it in there in a completely different way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and apparently, like the Nigerian information minister, like basically tried to ban the film and have it edited to like because it was just so bad. So, it was, like, it's so, so offensive. offensive. To yeah. Them. And so that's hard to watch and be like, God, you could have made a better choice there. You know, you need the villain, you need the those types of characters, but it could have been whatever. 
it's something else. I don't know. It just it's it's what happens when white people make movies about race. It's well, ex- yes. like <laughs> yes. And that was I started looking some stuff up about it, and you know that's not what people talk about. What people talk about is actually the the white savior trope that the film really is fits in with but doesn't and i think what's interesting is it isn't like a classic one um do you know annalee newitz is a science fiction writer so yeah, she had she a wrote, really um, cool article about she wrote it. autonomous i love her yeah I love her book. so mm-hmm. she wrote an article about that and was talking about you know avatar which was out i guess around the same time and sort mm-hmm. of like how that white Blech. savior narrative right and but whereas this like he's not really heroic in fact he's acting like a terrible person very much up until the very last moment. I mean, even like, yeah. like you know, taking the kid and leaving the dad out of the ship and just over and over making the wrong choices. So it doesn't really come across as that like savior figure. And and my wife was asking me like, well, d- does he save them? And I'm like, kind of except that everything he did made it worse for them and they would have been much better off without his presence. Like yeah. they, they had the ship, they were ready to get go. He stole the component they needed and then like fumbles everything along the way after that. And it's like- yeah, he's not a white savior, but he is the main character in a story but, about yes. oppression, right? Yes, exactly, because, so those, because of who Those made are the three yeah. things that, for me, brought it from a 10 to a 9, where like, I think of, like, Children of Men as a 10, in terms of, like, yeah. documentary, sci-fi, shot, you know, perfect. Wouldn't change a thing. This one, it's the Nigerians, the white savior complex, and the fact that, you guys know I'm going to go here, where are the female prawns? Are they males that spontaneously, like, I was just like, why couldn't Christopher be Christina? She right. mother. Oh, that's like it really bothered me. I was just like, oh, so they're all male. That's just like that kind of tone deafness that I don't know. I appreciate that there's not a lot explained. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. I love that he didn't try to give you an explanation of what they were. I think that was so smart. Why they were there. Nothing. Like that's so much better. But those little things that I think just date it and you forget that two thousand nine things right. just wouldn't fly now. Fails right? the Bechdel but, test very yeah. strong. Oh, one thousand percent. So so yeah, on uh, so I, I did watch this movie two times yesterday and the second time I had uh, Neil Blomkamp's commentary on and he does address all of that a little bit. Um, but the interesting thing, so the first thing I'll get out of the way is on the, the structure and the hierarchy of the prawns. I f- thought was really interesting. He had some sort of idea of what they were, but just didn't want to implement it into the movie. He just didn't think there was time or he, he said he likes movies that kind of just plant little ideas but could there could be five other movies about this that we're never going to see but he knows what's going on there so his idea was that it was some kind of ant hive or bee colony that Mm -hmm. they're basically all drones and their queen died on some sort of mission and now they're finding themselves aimless of like that that question of like what if a a collective species like this finds themselves without their leader and in a strange place like what how do they learn individuality like do they learn individuality or do they just kind of tear themselves apart so that that was one of the interesting because i i remember noticing Can i retort him i really yeah. want to retort him okay <laughs> yeah. i love that and i think that's a great idea but there just seems to be so many creative ways for men to come up with reasons to not write female characters and it's just like <laughs> that's a great one and i do really like that idea but like if you read arson scott card he wrote about hive minds and he had like a very deeply interesting female character anyway like, it just seems like it's, like, the last thing they want to do. And they're like, cool, how can I not write a female character? Okay, all-male character society. Queen's dead. Perfect. I'll just write about the Like, but whatever. There's only two speaking parts for the for the prawns, right? And it's okay. Uh, it's and it's the same. Three, basically, yeah. There were a couple, like, random prawns that spoke. And the same Oh, yeah, guy there's one that says of F off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, okay. It's the same right. actor who does all of the voices mm-hmm. for all the prawns. 
I want to hear the other two things that he, the way that he addresses race and the white savior stuff. But first, I want to tell everyone that you're listening to They Came From Outer Space on WRIR or on a streaming platform. My name is Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Victor Russell and Noah Scalen, and we're talking about the 2009 movie District 9. We are here at uh, MNU head office, Department of Alien Affairs. My name is Vikas van der Merwe. And behind me, you can see other alien affairs workers. And what we do here at this department is we try to engage with the prawn on behalf of MNU and on behalf of humans. Okay, Victor, what does he say to the other things? So the thing that, so for context, I had not watched this movie probably since 2014 or 15. And I, I didn't really remember... I remembered stuff about it, but I didn't really like connect with Vickis as a character when I was first watching. Like it, it wasn't anything that I considered. He was just the guy that was kind of taking us through this whole movie and bad stuff happens to him, but I never really considered him as, as a, a character within the story. And the first thing one watching it again was like, man, he's a bad dude. Like he, he <laughs> yeah. sucks for so much of this movie and the, the central, like one of the, I think brilliant things about this movie is that you, I, at least when I watched it as a, a dumb kid was like, I didn't even question that. Like he's just, yeah, he's the hero of the movie. And even watching it now, it really does. It, for the most part, it, it works because it, it's a challenging thing to watch who, you know, to be a, basically a, like a, a mid-level Nazi officer policing the ghettos. Like that's basically right. what he's doing. He's, he yeah. has no hatred towards the prawns, but he he regards them in more of just like a like not in any sort of anthropological interest. Like he like he he treats them as if they're just they're they're things. Literally, they're not human. He he has there's a condescending interest in them. Like when he finds the eggs, um, oh, he just like takes it. He just takes it out. It's like that's like some Japanese Unit Seven Thirty One stuff of like they're just experimenting or starship troopers yeah exactly yeah. just like uh, which is good foreshadowing to how the company eventually starts treating him but um the the thing that i was going to say on, on not just race and particularly but the thing that i also hadn't really connected with that blomkamp was talking about all throughout the commentary was how funny stuff was to him he he views this as like a dark comedy satire which i i have no I place that. i have no place to really put that into context because I did not live in this environment that he lived in. He, it's clear that this was an incredibly personal movie to him, um, not just from a filmmaking standpoint, but from a just historical, like he, he grew up in these areas. He grew up knowing these kinds of communities better than any of us ever could. So I, I, I trust his judgment when it comes to depicting certain things in certain ways, but he does talk about the, the Nigerian, um, gang and the also the interplay between the nigerians and the prawns where the prawns are really like a they're kind of a stand-in for uh mostly zimbabwean but other uh immigrants from south africa or from other countries to south africa and how the mostly black and indigenous uh, populations of south africa would treat them so there's like multiple levels of apartheid for a lack of a better term going on and i think that's what's hard too as americans is we have a very specific understanding of race and racism mm -hmm. and it's very different obviously in south africa and when he did live from Joburg, they were interviews 
were there with people that are like seem like they're locals and what he did was he didn't ask them about aliens he asked them about other africans from different yeah. locations about them and then edited what? it and so yeah, yeah. so that's, that's so what's good. crazy about it is that's that there's so that xenophobia around you know it's like it it's rampant and it's yeah and it, it, it you can just easily flip it over to aliens which what's great about sci-fi right is that you can talk about yeah. these mm-hmm. issues and very directly correlates to real world stuff that's happened yeah. and happening it's like and the then, realer it is, the better it is, you yeah. know, like the yeah. more he leaned into the veracity of the moment, the more, mm-hmm. the better the sci-fi was. And yeah. And then as, at least as far as the gang goes, there, there was one thing that he, like he did talk about the Muti killings and how that it's obviously an extreme thing that happens, but it is a thing that happens in that community. And maybe it's not fair to represent them in that, in this movie exclusively through that lens. Um, the thing that he mentioned that I thought was a little odd was the satire of the the members of the gang. So the the man actually playing, uh, I don't remember the, the name, um, the, the, but the, the gang leader who wanted the arm, he's actually a Malawi uh, actor. And then apparently the, all the languages that they're speaking to each other are like, like he's speaking Nigerian, but they're speaking like Kosa and other languages to him. So like, apparently that's part of the satire for Blomkamp is like that they, they're they're all mixed up anyway, and then but they're still collectively being xenophobic towards the aliens, which like I get it. I don't really know if that's the best way to do that. But yeah, so I, I wanted to talk. I, I mean, I wanted to circle back to the effects, but I I actually think based on what we're talking about, I want to lean into since you guys are both writers. You know, Victor, you're a screenwriter, and mm-hmm. Noah, you're an artist and writing a novel, a sci-fi novel, which is so cool. Like, what stands out to you about the script, the, the structure, the plot, the pacing? I mean, it, it, it's it's um, it's so this film and I think why you say like it holds it's good still, despite its major <laughs> drawbacks is because it's, it's a masterclass in like efficiency. Right. It's it's so sparse. It gets a story along. There's a lot t- you know, told in very simple ways. It's very, very effective. You get you you don't have to explain stuff to understand it, and I think that was very smartly done. And then to find out that like there's also a lot of improv in it, mm-hmm. which really is great because that can really pull something down, you know, if you're trying to tell a really tight story. But instead, I think that gives it those moments of veracity and humor and moments too that that help it not just be dr- <laughs> just misery watching you know endless shooting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that the strength of the movie is necessarily the script it, it, as is like what is what would have been on the page on the day, um, but absolutely the world building it and just the the effort that Neil Blomkamp and his wife. Oh, sorry, what did who who was the other writer? I didn't. I for, I thought Terry Thatchell. That's his wife's name. Yeah, Terry. That they wrote together. Like they did such a good job of realizing this world and then putting because Charlton Copley is apparently just a very gifted. He hasn't acted in hadn't acted in films to this point, but like um, Noah said, he was in the South Africa film scene. Um, so he was a he was understanding of the process and everything, and just a, like letting Neil Blomkamp truck or Neil letting Shalter just go in and improv a whole bunch of stuff while staying on track is to the fact that this movie got made with the amount of effects that they had to do and improving scene by scene and like having to 
basically do effects on the fly at, based on whatever take they were using is it's crazy. It's, it's crazy it's that, really, this, that this got yeah. this got made. I actually have a quote about that. So in that same Adam Savage interview, that that was getting really big audience laughs. Is he's like, so first of all, Peter Jackson told me to put Charlotte into it because he saw mm. the Joburg film, and he goes, oh yeah, sure, sure. So my first, I'm a first time feature director, and I'm going to tell the studio that I'm going to put my best friend in it from childhood who's never acted and we're going to improv most of it. It's like, yeah, like it, it has no right to have worked. Like, yeah. this, no, no, but like it's, I actually think that's why it works is because mm -hmm. the studio system is generally something that pumps out mostly crap. And when yeah. you give somebody a lot more authority, like Peter Jackson gave him 30 million basically and said, do it. That's the secret was that he said, I trust you, you know, that there was trust to really bring it out there. But I mean, I was so shook that this was his first time. He gave such an incredible performance. Yeah. The fact that you don't like him, the fact that I, I thought his humor and like he was so real to me, like when he's going around and picking stuff up and. and yeah, he's multifaceted. He wasn't like a one note, you mm. know, villain. He, you know, he, 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 you know, you kind of feel for him in moments and then he immediately undercuts it with stupid behavior. And yeah. Like, oh. But like. When, all right, so my favorite moment of his in the film is when they're in the bunker that becomes the ship, and he goes from, you know, you shady prawns, I've never trusted you, and then the then Christopher says, oh, but I can fix you, and immediately goes, you know what, I've always trusted you, I've always loved you guys, I've always thought you were amazing, and like yeah. that, the, the, change, the change in his face, like the way his eyes just lifted, I was so impressed, like that to me was masterclass level acting. And so it just, I was like, okay, how much of that is just luck? How much of that is the director? And then yeah. the fact that they did improv so much of it. And he said, you know, so I'm interested in the directing aspect. And Neil and Blomkamp would go in and say every day, we would just make sure we talked about what was the intent of the scene. And that's like film school, acting school 101. And I was like, okay, if that's all it takes, I don't know. What, what was that magic that somehow made it work against all odds? No. I was, I was so, I had forgotten about Peter Jackson's involvement in it so when i started watching it to this time i was like oh there's his name I'm like right this makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense i mean you think about his early stuff it reminded me of bad taste honestly like those his really early sci-fi alien gore film stuff and i'm just like man this is of course this makes sense and then the other thing when you're talking about that, that freedom i was i just watched a little mini doc about um a24 and why their films are just so consistently good and it, it, it's because they do the same thing of like trusting people like giving them the money and the space to make something and let let them have the vision and so it's interesting that Blomkamp really I mean I haven't seen I saw Chappie I didn't see Elysium though so I can't compare it but it feels like he and then I know he put out an, a horror movie recently that got just panned yeah. and then like you know what happened right because obviously this guy is capable of some incredible stuff but yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I have seen Elysium and Chappie, and I think I think they all have things going for them. It, it, to me, personally, it's just him iterating on the same kind of points over and over again. And I have not seen his series of short film in the, the Oats series, which are apparently quite good. Oh, I, I saw those, yeah. yeah. I mean, but those are really like showing off how you can use, um, was it Unreal Engine, I think? Yeah, they're more tech demos yeah. than anything else. Um, but yeah, that, I, I think this was the, the strongest, most dis distilled version of what he was trying to get to in those other two movies. But then why, yeah, what, what magic is missing, right? Like, why didn't it happen? Why couldn't he do it again? I don't know. I, I, uh, I think they didn't, those... he didn't get a shanty town for free <laughs> in any of the other ones. There yeah. you go. You know, I think I, I, that's my guess. It's like the fact that this was so closely related to real events made, yeah. gave, I think it's, this is my guess. 
I refused to watch Elysium, even though, even though I really love Jodie Foster, I was like, I'm sorry, Jodie, I'm not doing this. Like I would never. um, And I've heard people tell me anyway, I think it's theory of constraints. Yes. Oh, you know, I'm all about that. Yeah. And you are, you're like the king of constraints. I really think that should be like one of your monikers. (laughs) I'll I'll take it. No, I mean, it's, yeah, no, that's a great point. And they're both absolutely studio movies with, whereas this is a much more guerrilla, like indie uh, effort that just happened to have the backing of one of the best uh, effects houses in the world. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? The, the other thing that came up when I was watching this, because this is an incredibly violent movie. And and as I get mm-hmm. older, like I still love, I love horror movies, but like violence for violence sake doesn't appeal to me. And I just saw um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 in the theaters. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was exhausted by the amount of violence in it. And I would, I, and I was really like, what is the point of this? Why is this a children's movie? And I actually had nightmares that night nightmares but dreams about like shooting people with a gun like like it was just so much and i saw this movie and i was like wow you know i would say there's an equivalent amount of just endless shooting and yet it's feels justified in this film like it feels like it has a purpose and a reason in a way that like because in in not to make it about guardians of galaxy 3 but in that movie you know essentially like a lot of people lose their lives to save a single person's life or Mm -hmm. a single animal's life and conversely, this is really about like all this stuff is happening in service of saving millions and millions of lives. And to yeah. get that one bald headed general to finally die because he yeah. just wouldn't go down. Yeah. But guy. no, you're right. Like that, that I think we have become particularly uh, way too numb to it. And I, I personally found the violence a little excessive in this film. But I think it's interesting because like maybe maybe it's because you have a daughter. But my, my dad, his his like his tolerance for violence has dropped so much to the point where he's like, I won't walk to Hill Bill. You know, like I won't even do it. Yeah. I wonder if that happens over time where it, it, it's I not think as aging fun and children. <laughs> aging and children. Yeah. Fatherhood makes you not like the blood bag explosions anymore. But yeah. And I, um, and I think this does. And I think this does put the violence in. It doesn't push it to the forefront in the same way that a lot of other movies do, I think. And Blomkamp did talk about, like, the... Because the violence and the technology basically go hand in hand. Like, they're, it's all basically used to cause violence in some way. But the technology is not at the forefront either. Like, the, the tech is just... Like, there's the, that lengthy scene in the middle of the movie where Vickis gets um, uh, kidnapped by the MNU and then is forced to test out the weaponry. And that's it that scene does so many things at once because it shows off the capabilities of the the prawns it shows how destructive that weaponry can be and what what how mnu feels about it it that's the turn for vicus from uh like company man into uh rebel like whatever the the trope is for avatar and dances with wolves like i'm gonna join the prawns instead um and <laughs> but it but it also shows off uh, like it, it kind of does all that, but it doesn't. It seems like they're like if this was a superhero movie, and this is kind of a superhero origin story in a weird, messed up way. Like there, there are so many scenes in those kinds of movies and in action movies where there's like the gearing up scene or the testing of power scene. Like Shazam does a really obvious one of like they just go to a warehouse and say like I wonder what kind of powers I have and just destroys a bunch of stuff like that there, there there's such an easier like cheaper way to do that and that scene basically does it while also telling you like this isn't good like this is horrifying 
Yeah, it's the most brutal scene in the do. movie, I think. Yeah, right? it's, and, it's upsetting to watch. And, and, and there is there is like a teeny little bit of indulgence near the end where it's like you you get a little bit of glee of like, oh, the bad guys are getting exploded or blown up in or destroyed in fun ways. But I think it it it's pretty restrained overall in that sense, and it's more being emotional. Like you're more on Vickis's journey of like how he's uh getting through this situation rather yeah. than like a gleeful rampage of stuff but it, it gives itself a little mo a few moments to do that no you're right there's like fun explosions but you're right it's so different from a marvel film one in that he takes hits and doesn't really even survive the firefight right like mm -hmm. that he first of all he actually is taking hits He's taking hits like it's like the difference between watching Jackie Chan and any other American like fight is like you you notice that he, like he's getting punched like yeah. it's more engaging. Two, it's like they're actually in this place, right? They're actually like in this place where there are it's in a slum, and I think that actually I saw this meme about it was like it showed a person like underneath a bunch of rubble, and it's like your lungs are crushed and there's tubes coming out of your body, and the last thing you hear is a Marvel character saying <laughs> something about Mondays. <laughs> And it's like that's like that's how it feels when you watch their fights. It's like there's no, there's no representation of humanity. It's just like obscene, like craziness, right? And it's it's not constrained. It's not feeling like realism. And he's so focused on realism that you're right. I mean, it's a little honestly, the movie was exhausting. But I give I give such applause for a two hour movie that I didn't. I get so bored so easily, right? We all do. Oh yeah, I, I did not turn away from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you just have to applaud that. That's so hard to do nowadays. I do think the documentary camera can get tiring. It's the same thing that really turned people off about Cloverfield is that they're like, my eyes hurt or like mm, my, no. my body is in pain because you're tense, you know, you're tense because you're watching this documentary no. style newsreel. What do you guys think about the cinematography? Would you change anything? I, I th So that was the, the other thing I was trying to focus on in one of my rewatches was just how often it actually uses the documentary style uh, framing, not not just camera work, but just the the pretense of like, this is footage that we've pulled and compiled together. Because basically what it seems like the movie's trying to do is present this as a, a piece of media that you would watch in that world. Like there, there's the title cards at the end saying a future that, or the, the current state of District 10, like, that's not a real thing. So like, why are you telling me that? Um, it, it really for the mid, like the middle, like the third and fourth fifths of this movie, it just is not a documentary anymore. It, it has impossible camera angles and it doesn't frame it in news footage or anything like that. And the brilliant thing is you just don't care. You, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't need to be a documentary anymore. You can show camera footage from inside the helmet or, around the gang the nigerian gang that there's no reason that they would ever allow cameras around there and you just don't think about it it's, it's so brilliantly done to just you get that framing in the first 10 minutes and then you kind of pepper it in throughout and it's just it works it's flawless yeah i, I was paying attention to that and, and i was and only because i was i saw okay this is when they switch but it is is seamless and it, mm -hmm. and you're right i mean i think it's done in a way that works because you don't question it. You don't go, gee, I wish this stayed as a documentary the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're like, no, I need to see these scenes <laughs> and it's more exciting. And I'm not going to then just be like trying to piece it together. Yeah. And there are, I wish, in, in I wish this much, was shakier in yeah. this part. Gee, if only it was harder to focus yeah. on. And there's also, because there's the conceit that you have to give, like there have to be scenes where they cut to not Vicus basically to, to get some moments. Like there's, 
very few scenes that aren't around him, but when they do, it's because they need to get some information that you just couldn't, you couldn't get that in the documentary style. It yeah. wouldn't make sense, but they do a great job of, there, there's different like tiers of perspective, I guess, where like the first tier would be an actual human in that world holding the camera. And then the other ones are like, there's not an actual person in that world holding the camera, but it, it's from a human perspective. It's not an impossible shot. Like it's not like a helicopter shot or a drone mm -hmm. shot or whatever. And everything in this film is, from what I could tell, like shot in a way that a human, if they were there in that world, would have shot it. Like mm -hmm. there's no shots of the prawns, for example, like from above. Like everything is a human perspective and the prawns are seven, eight Unless feet tall. Unless there's a helicopter coming no. in yeah, and you exactly. see person first. Yeah, yeah exactly. A lot so of like helicopters in that movie. But like, yeah, there's no shots of from prawn perspective. It's all from the ground or of a human height looking up at prawns or they're on... on like their heads are kind of mm. cut off. So like it does a really good job of kind of putting you in that, um, that, that perspective of like boots on the ground, like that wartime documentary kind of footage. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing because when you, I heard an interview with him where he's like, I took some risks by making a repulsive alien. And I was <laughs> like, that is true. He's like, that and that because of the really smart design of having like the more malleable muscles around their eyes, mm -hmm. that's all it takes for you to relate to them and really root for Christopher and especially for yeah. the baby, for the little, for the son and stuff like that. You're like fully on their side, way more than you're on Vickis' side, right? Like, yeah. Well, and they try that to, moment they where their ship is like slowly rising <laughs> for like ten minutes. But yeah, go ahead. They set it up in that way. Well, those big Pixar eyes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and they set it up. You know, like. At the very beginning, they're trying to be like, oh, they're these violent aliens and look at these bad things they're doing. But yeah, it doesn't take long for you to get on their side and then you're completely on their side. And they're like, oh, these are the only people or characters I care about at this point is like their safety and their well-being. Yeah, yeah he's and, been collecting um, fluid for 20 years. Like I'm all, I'm on his side completely. Yeah. Like that's that must have been hard. And, you know, you want answers. But also I think he's also not the he's also the only character who hasn't done anything wrong. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like he's also he's also like I love what I thought was really smart was you see a bunch of prawns and I love the character design so much that he talks about like the exoskeleton and, and the, just the pure sci-fi nerdery. But our main character is really one of the only ones that's like wearing both a top and bottom clothing. Oh, line. interesting. And I was like, mm, that's so interesting. Like he was like, oh, he's got a little vest and like some weird shorts on. I was like, that's the one we root for, right? Because that's more the humanized. one with pants. <laughs> the yeah. one with pants and a kid, you know, like that's right, the one yeah, we care yeah. about. Yeah. So we're coming towards the end. You guys are listening to They Came From Outer Space on WIR and on a streaming platform. I'm here with Victor Carussell and Noah Scalen, and we're talking about District 9. Instead, coasted to a halt directly over the city of Johannesburg. The doors didn't open for three months. It just hovered there. Nobody could get in. And they eventually decided, after much deliberation, that the best thing to do would be to physically cut their way in. We were on the verge of first contact. The whole world was watching. Expecting, I don't know, music from heaven and bright shining lights. There's a lot of moisture in here. Yeah, just go slowly. Oh my god. Well, you know what? I was surprising when i looked it up was to see that it was nominated for a best picture award in i was too because and, and a bunch of visual effects and editing and screenplay mm -hmm. because a low budget sci-fi you know genre film 
but also because I feel like it's almost a forgotten movie now. I mean, I, I don't feel like I hear people talking about it, maybe just in my circles, but it, it's not one of those movies that I see coming up a lot on lists or mentioned a lot. I don't know. It just felt like something that kind of fell out of the zeitgeist and yet was that popular? Like, wow. Like, a, you know, it felt like an indie film when we saw it, maybe. like, oh, look at us discovering this thing. And then it'd be like, oh, it was nominated for Academy Award. Yeah. I think well, it's because we'll of race. But if you watched the video that Victor was talking about from, was it CNY? CGY, uh, I think. CGY, yeah. it just came out two months ago. And this guy was writing this whole thing about like why it's still like the best ever. Now that's one nerd. But you're right. It's not it's not talked about as much anymore. But yeah, I, why do you guys think it was nominated for Best Picture? Because I mean, I would, I think, I want to look at what, what, what won that year. Yeah, Who what did the Oscar? The, the right, somebody looked at one. What was it? Huh? The Hurt Locker one. Hurt Locker. Oh, wow. You didn't even you have know. to look up, Victor. You just knew that. Yeah. <laughs> because I knew that Avatar came out. This Avatar came out like two months later. And this does a lot of those same themes that Avatar does way better. Well, also, I, it's kind of like a mashup of both those movies. It's like Bush era oh, politics yeah. in slums and aliens. Yeah. Well, and I think that it, it fits the, the, the thing that um, the Academy likes, which is like, it's meaningful. You know, it's mm -hmm. about something important. But of course, also like not paying attention to who's telling that story or how it's being told exactly. And I think because it sort of stood out in that way, maybe is why I got in the sort of circle of nominations. Really I interesting. Guess. What won for best directing and cinematography in 2009 was Slumdog Millionaire. So well, we were in the slums. Yeah. It's all about <laughs> slums. At that it's all about slums, 2009 Arab. So, so what I really... What I really look for when I watch these films, and I love looking at the interviews, and, and Victor, I love that you watch the commentaries, is what can we learn as filmmakers and storytellers from the low-budget perspective? What, it, what does this film do well that we can learn from? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the, what Blomkamp, like the, the thing that he kept talking about, besides all of the the weird dark humor and stuff which i found thought really funny because i never considered this like a, a comedy at all it's a lot of things it's a it's a body horror it's a buddy cop it's a sci-fi action it's a documentary but I, I never thought of it as like a dark comedy ever no me was, neither he was cracking up at like oh all the funny things that we put vickis through like oh that's just horrible stuff um yeah i think yeah just it was such a, a personal endeavor for him and that he used the environment that he grew up with using the friends that he that he had from, I think he met um, uh, Charlotte Copley in high school um, and had worked with him for, for years on random stuff. Um, but yeah, just being able to take advantage of that stuff. Like, yeah, like you said, Cameron, they basically just built a fence around a abandoned section of um, Soweto and used that because, and they said if they didn't put the fence up, then that set would have been gone in the morning. <laughs> so like, yeah, just, it just the, the, industriousness that they were able to to use to get this done and then obviously having the, the backing of peter jackson helps. yeah so that's the thing real lesson is get yeah. peter jackson the back <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know the, the other thing is i mean obviously there's so much luck involved in so many of these things but you know he had made a prototype right so first of all he made a short film that said this is what i believe in this was my vision and and when the halo movie fell apart they had a whole production team set up to make a movie and so it was at that point that Peter Jackson's like, hey, what else you got? Right. And so in that moment, if you're like, I don't know, nothing happens. Right. And instead you're like, boom, mm -hmm. look at this. And then, yes, let's go for it. Right. And then, boom, you got this thing. It's funny because I guess he's now about to do a, a video game movie again. He, yeah. He's doing a movie based on Grand Theft or not Grand Theft. Grand right. Turismo. Grand Turismo. Which, yeah. which, which I is played. A, a true story. I played on that. I, yeah. Hilarious. I played 
Gran Turismo on PS2, and as soon as I saw that, it just made me sad. I was like, this is exactly the stuff he talked about in his interviews about how he didn't want to be one of these big budget, do whatever they say directors, and it's like you either get to, I don't know, Victor. I know you have thoughts about Ari Aster's work, um, and we don't necessarily have time to get into that. Of like (laughs) how much, how much money and free will and free reign you get to have, and how good your work can continue to be. We have such high expectations for people, but yeah, I love, I love, I like that you say he made a prototype. But that what it reminds me of Noah is just like what you hear in the biz is you've got to have a lot of plates in the fire. You've got to have three mm. scripts written and they have to all be different budget levels and different audiences. So that so when they say now nah, we can't do a can't do an alien slum movie right now. It's, there's too many of those. What else do you got? You know, you have to have those things ready. Um, but yeah, I like that. You know, he he made a short film that was really good. And, and he used those effects. And he, that was, he was the first person to be like, don't treat your effects. Like they're on a pedestal. He said that a lot. Right. Yeah. Don't like pan away from them quickly, zoom over them and like pretend they're not even there. And that was pretty revolutionary. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at Lord of the Rings, they're like, look at our effects, you know, <laughs> like the, every, <laughs> almost every movie that does that, yeah, Marvel. you yeah. know, is really proud of them to the point where they won't, they refuse to cut or crop. And he was cutting and cropping and zooming and panning and blurring yeah. and going crazy. Yeah. And yeah, and the other thing about th- what is special about this, I guess, fundamentally that he talked about was like, it it all really just came from the idea of like, I haven't seen this before. Like, this is a thing that I mm. would think is interesting. I've never seen it done before. And I, I just want it to see realized. So, like he'd never seen, A, he'd never seen his community really, uh, presented in film at all uh it's outside of documentaries and stuff obviously but he'd never really seen that and then he'd never seen this like a sci-fi thing in that wasn't set in like a big metropolitan area or out in the boonies in in america like he wanted to see some like sci-fi based in in africa uh and that i think that's just like that that alone is just such an interesting it really turns it, it turns the genre on its head so quickly in the movie to be like, mm-hmm. oh, alien ship arrives. It's not in America. Yeah. And then also like they're a mess. And also now they're we're just having to deal with them being in slums here because we don't know what to do with it. And just like one after another just flips every expect expectation on its head. Yeah. This is think, the, this, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I think the biggest expectation that he flips is the role the aliens play. Yeah. They're not they're not the omniscient contact alien and they're not the malicious you know, Terminator or whatever, you know, like the yeah, yeah. You know, like edge, edge of Tomorrow alien. They're helpless. Like that's the first time I've ever seen it, you know, no. that we always, we always have them as bigger and better than us. And they do have bigger and better technology and a bigger and better ship. But no. the idea yeah. of the helpless refugee alien was, that was the biggest shift for me. Yeah. And I think he, he either said that or somebody said it, I forget exactly where it was in the commentary, but he said something about like, it, it would be such an interesting idea if aliens came and no one cared. Like nothing significantly changes about our world. It's just, oh, this is just another thing we have to deal with now. And that like that combined with all of the other just looking around around him and seeing like how could this fit into the world I live in, it just combines into such like a brilliant, interesting world. I do think we should wrap up on that. That's really perfect. Yeah, I was gonna say it was a great line. He said it. <laughs> I'm not gonna do anything else. Thank you, Noah, for giving me that pause. <laughs> Thank you, Victor, for yeah. thank you, Victor, for watching it twice. Yesterday. Yeah, man, good job. And um, really, thank you, Noah, for bringing this film back up. People listening, I really hope this reinvigorates your interest in watching this film and and seeing what it has to offer. Fourteen years later, um, 
You've been listening to They Came From Outer Space on WIR and on all podcast streaming platforms. If you want to see what our guests look like, go to They Came From Outer Space underscore on Instagram. And uh, follow us on Apple and give us five stars. Noah and Victor, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure.